From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The 55th New York Film Festival is only three weeks away, with new films from Richard Linklater, Woody Allen, Todd Haynes, Anya Sparta, Claire Denis, and many more. The festival runs September 28th through October 10th, and tickets go on sale this Sunday, September 10th. Go to filmlink.org NYFF for more information. In anticipation of the festival, the Film Society's editorial director, Michael Koreski, sat down with NYFF director Kent Jones to discuss this year's lineup. Let's go now to their conversation. Hi, this is the Close-Up Podcast, the podcast of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I'm Michael Kresge. I'm the editorial director, and I'm here with Kent Jones, who is the director of the New York Film Festival. And this is a very exciting time of year because we love to talk about the upcoming New York Film Festival. And everyone in the office is always a buzz, so it's great to get... sort of to love get... to talk about it. <laughs> Some of us love <laughs> to talk about it. And, and I know that a lot of people are interested in these films and what these films are. And it's really a good opportunity to sit and talk with Kent to kind of um, get the lowdown on some of these titles and just kind of um, go through them and see what's really exciting this year. Well, I mean, I guess we could start by talking about the opening night film. It's obviously a good place to start. And um, this actually is one of the few films that I have seen. So uh, it won't just be you telling me what, what it is, what I should be looking forward to. It's a, it's a very powerful film. It's Richard Linklater's new movie, and um, it's called Last Flag Flying. And it's, I would say, in some ways, a change of pace for him, but in some ways not. I mean, it kind of falls in line with a lot of what he's been doing. It just has a, maybe a more um, urgent social and political idea behind it. Maybe you, you know, should, maybe you should you, give... Yeah, you could debate that. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's did start life many many years ago as a sequel to the last detail and it's and it's based on a novel by Daryl Ponickson who wrote the original novel and the screenplay for the last detail and I really hesitate to give away too much about it I mean I mean you know well I guess we wrote about it in the blurb right the general situation yeah this general idea of it three vets you know from the Vietnam era convening three very different kinds of people from three different parts of the country to help um, one of their numbers bury his son. The film is a period piece. It's set in 2003 at what was supposedly Mission Accomplished around the time of Mission Accomplished, which wasn't, as we all know. And um, I would say, I would take issue with your idea that it's different from, from Linklater's other movies just because a social issues have never been far from him his work at all. I mean, you know, fast food nation. Oh, that's true. Fast food um, nation. Boyhood, really. I mean, you know, it, it, you could. He does weave them through. He does. Gently. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe this is maybe closer to fast food nation in that way. A film that I admire a lot, by the way. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you know, he's a guy whose entire body of work I pretty much admire. I just think he's really like all great artist he's utterly unique and this is a road movie and a road movie in the sense of like you know a 70s road movie Mm -hmm. it's it takes place over a very specific time frame right you know which is another thing with him i mean there are very few of his movies that veer outside of that um formula or that structure you know the newton boys and scanner darkly and 
fast food nation, but I mean, you know, those are exceptions to the rule. Um, and, uh, you know, it's Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne and Steve Carell, and it's built off of their energies and, but it's also a movie about, um, again, like his other movies where people talk their way through, um, themselves to a kind of, they talk their way past their own, um, mm. th th their own, uh, weak spots and their own, you know, shortcomings into some kind of, you know, uh, beautiful state that's kind of like a nirvanic state. Yeah, there say. is something generally cathartic about the experience. I, I saw it, um, the screening that I saw it at, there were just a few people at this advanced screening and everybody was wiping their eyes at the end. It's a, yeah. it's a very emotional experience. I think you can assume from the uh, description that you gave why that would be, but I think it actually comes upon those cathartic emotional moments very honestly and in a very su surprising ways. It certainly does. And yeah. I was actually really <laughs> delighted to watch a road movie. It actually yeah. had been a long time. You forget because, you know, Hollywood cinema is not making movies like this anymore, making any movies anymore, really. Yeah. And so... Yeah, there is no such thing as Hollywood cinema. Right. So I... So the, the, the basic formula, if you want to call it that, of a road movie suddenly seemed so refreshing and so wonderful and it just was able to contain so much emotion in those couple hours and I realized that I'd been missing it. It's one of those films that I think people are going to watch and realize that they've been missing exactly what it's giving them. Yeah, it, yes, and, but also to enlarge on something that you just said about the way that the epiphanies come. Uh, yeah, it's a very moving film. And at this point... As you said, and there is no more, you know, Hollywood doesn't really make movies anymore. They make something else. There is no Hollywood, strictly speaking, anyway, you know. Right. And, but emotional epiphanies come with arrows pointing at them, mm -hmm. you know, and centered and bolted and, you know, and um, usually slow motion these days. There's, yeah, <laughs> there's some slow motion, but there are other ways of doing it. And I think that it's like, um, people have grown used to that. That's the influence of television. Um, yeah. I think not, not to knock television, which is, it's now the common wisdom that it's better than ever. It's like, yes and no, but yeah, it's, it's generally better than it ever has, it has ever been. Nonetheless, it's television, mm -hmm. um, episodic storytelling that hits certain emotional points based on the style template. So, you know, Rick's movie is a completely different universe from that. And it's very, um, it is very moving. It's also hilarious. It is. It's um, surprisingly funny. It manages to get a lot in there. Yeah. Um, it's it's and it's interesting talking about television and the you know the delivery system of television in comparison to something like a link letter film, any link letter film. You yeah. talk about time being compressed or expanded. A link letter film. There's really no film of his that you can imagine playing as television. They have to function within the framework of a movie. I mean, you think about yeah. what would boyhood be if it was broken up to, into episodes. It wouldn't be the same experience at all. It wouldn't even make any sense emotionally. And this film is a good example of something that if you want to take the general plot of it as, as a road film, you have these stops along the route. You know, you have the eastern seaboard and they're, they're basically going to bury the, the, the son of one of them. Um, you can see someone had somewhere having pitched, oh, make this into a series. 
you know, every week they're someplace else. Yeah. It would have had none of the emotional impact that it has. It has to be compressed the way that it is. I mean, he works with time so beautifully. I mean, you know, look, I think it's a very simple thing. Cinema is, is about concision. Television isn't. Right. Uh, you know, concision and compression. And so it's like, you know, um, even in something like School of Rock or Bad News Bears, that holds true. I think. And those have been developed into other things. School of Rock is a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Broadway still, right? Or did yeah. it close? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I think it's still open. <laughs> yeah. But still, you know, this is a guy who works in the artist cinema. Right. Um, and then to jump to the Closing Night movie, which is Woody Allen's very surprising new film, Wonder Wheel. This is somebody who actually just worked in television for the first time. Not for yeah. the first time, but episodic, first time. episodic television yeah. uh, for the first time um, last year. Yeah. And But Wonder Wheel is something that is definitely cinema. It moves like it. It has, um, well, it has a, it actually has a very theatrical structure as well, which is in its own way very refreshing. It reminded me a little bit of Blue Jasmine, but um, if you, I'd love to hear you talk about what it is that just really captured your imagination about Wonder Wheel. Well, it is like Blue Jasmine in the sense that the lead character does have a certain kind of resemblance to the heroines of... 40s and 50s drama specifically in the case of Blue Jasmine, Tennessee Williams and very specifically Streetcar Named Desire Blanche Dubois. In this case the trappings of the um, were basically in one place, you know, we're in, 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 in a very specific, we're in Coney Island in the 1950s and it's a very you know circumscribed area of Coney Island where Kate Winslet and her husband Jim Belushi and her son by a previous marriage live in this kind of really run-down ramshackle place on the boardwalk where he operates a, a ride. She works as a waitress. And it has the trappings of drama of an earlier era. You could say that that's also true of other Woody Allen movies like Interiors or September or Blue Jasmine. But in this case, it's kind of filtered through it's a story that's being told to us by someone, by a character who has a very active dramatic imagination and even says that to us before he tells us the story. So we're seeing something that's redolent of the drama of an earlier era and also Patty Chayefsky and TV, you know, drama Playhouse 90 stuff, Eugene O'Neill. But, but then at the same time, it's also got Vittorio Storaro shot at, this is the second film that they've made together, I think. I think Cafe Society was the first. And they're shooting digitally, but taking it into an area that's pretty astonishing with light and color and changes in color temperature, which is something Vittorio Storaro has always done. But now he's obviously able to, with digital probably, with HD rather, I should say, control it even more, you know. Yeah, I'd say that... Um one of my favorite era of filmmaking for Woody Allen is the late eighties and going a little bit into the early nineties. And there was a, um, I, I think of those movies really as really accomplished mood pieces. I mean, I can watch Alice or another woman or radio days and get completely enveloped in these worlds. And a lot of it had to do with the work of Carla Palma or Sven Nykvist. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this was the first time since those films that I yeah. felt like the cinematography was achieving that kind of a, um, that kind of a mood, that kind of an atmosphere where you feel like you're 
getting increasingly closed into this world. You're right. The light changes, the different gels that are being used in certain scenes is very theatrical. It's very beautiful. Mm. Um, I, his films have been very beautiful lately, actually. been working, doing great work with some great cinematographers. Yeah. But um, This one is something else. This is different. It's very... Uh, because the, the presence of light is actually is is felt not just is felt on a number of levels it's it's keyed to the emotion of the character played by kate winslet and kate winslet i you know not to speak hyperbolically but i mean you know that's one of the bravest performances i've seen in a movie in mm. a long time mm. i mean really she's absolutely remarkable and she just doesn't you know it's she just uh there's no there's no filter mm-hmm. you know i mean she just really um, gives all of herself to that character. Uh, well, she's such an expressive and transparent actress. It's it's something that's ever... always um, great to watch. And it's, as with any great artist or great actor, it's sad when the material doesn't measure up. And in this case, she's given something she can really dig into. I remember watching um, like a film like Revolutionary Road some years back where I felt like yeah, she's she throws herself into that with mm-hmm. such abandon. And, um, yeah. and the film just doesn't I suppose the work. same thing is true of the reader. Not fair to her. And the reader. Yeah. 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 No, that's true. Or little children. I mean, she's she's just you know consistently amazing and someone who I don't know. They're always excited about what she's going to do. You know, she's also great, by the way, in 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 you know a film that's opening very soon, the Hani Abu Assad film, where she's stranded in the mountain with uh, Idris Elba. Mm. You know, and has to make her way down. She's amazing. So, but in 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 Wonder Wheel, she's really. It's a, it's a very powerful experience seeing the way that she, Woody Allen, and Vittorio Storaro are all working completely in sync. In addition to the rest of the cast, Jim Belushi's great. Says so Juno yeah. Temple. I, I really yeah. love her. Jim Belushi is is outstanding. He's amazing. Actually. Yeah, and Justin Timberlake is is pretty perfect <laughs> because he's. But we don't want to say too much about the character. Also, it's a memory piece, like Radio Days, and. The, the the recreation the the work done to recreate Coney Island in the fifties is a, a vision. Yeah, I think people will know that from the very first shot. Yeah. The thing opens up, and I do hope people see it on the big screen because yeah, there's, me too. there's something kind of awe inspiring about the way that movie begins. I agree, and I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. Sort of takes your breath away. Yeah, I would. I think Darius Kanji, the work that he did on on Minute in Paris, is. That's that's another that's a great co- collaboration too. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. the the work that with Kanji on a number of films recently has yeah. been yeah. really beautiful. Some beautiful, beautiful work, including not a particularly good film, but um, Magic in the Moonlight is mm-hmm. an extraordinary looking movie. Well, also to kind of play off this um, uh, this this theme of um, recreation and period pieces, there's um, another film in the festival called Mudbound that a lot of people are talking about, and this first made its first splash. At Sundance earlier this year, and um, we do have a, a a feature on it in the new issue of Film Comment, an interview with Dee Reese, who also directed the film Pariah a few years ago, which is a very strong movie, a coming out story of a teenager, um, I believe in I believe in Brooklyn, took place in Brooklyn, yeah. right? Pariah. Um, this new movie, Mudbound, is a definite change of pace. It's on a much larger scale, and it's a World War II era drama about race in the South. So, could you talk a little bit about it that? Sure is. I just want to take a look and see how many period pieces we actually have i mean you know there are quite a few this year uh beats per minute call me by your name zama ladybird um by greta gerwig mudbound zama by lucrecia martel the return of lucrecia martel 
the welcome return. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll get there for sure. That's mm-hmm. one of the most exciting things yeah. happening. And and Wonderstruck, of course. Yes. Yep. And the opening, all three of the Gawa films, the opening, the centerpiece, and the closing are all period pieces. Mm. That's true. And the Christ's last flag flying, as you were yeah. saying, is in its own way as well. Yeah. But Mudbound is, is for me, a movie that really um, has a connection with older Hollywood in the best sense of the word because she really is invested in the building of the atmosphere, the world, the emotional gradations of these characters in a way that put me in mind of, you know, I don't know. Off the top of my head, William Wyler, or you know, wow. I, high praise. Yeah, well, it is high praise. I mean, you know, but I was I, I found the film enormously affecting and really uh, beautifully crafted, really beautifully crafted. The sense of place in the movie is established immediately with, from that incredible opening scene, and the sense of weather and mm. heat and. And it's it's about two sharecropping families, correct? It's about one two white sh- and one black. One white and one black, yeah, and, and and a white family that arrives to find, thinking that they're moving into a grand palace, but instead finding that they're going to be living in a shack as well. And uh, it's a movie that takes place over a number of years. You could call it an epic of a kind. You know, it has that kind of a. I don't know if sweep is the right word, but it definitely does have a, a, a kind of a grandeur to it mm. that is, is not present in a lot of movies now. And mm-hmm. um, interestingly, though we don't have to get too much into it, it is, it's a film that um, I, I'm not sure the, if the theatrical plan for it is set in place, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a Netflix film, so it yeah. will be available on Netflix. But is there is there going to be a, a large theatrical run sure. in place for it? Because it sure. sounds like such a big screen canvas film. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one issue that we haven't discussed is, you know, Amazon and Netflix. And, you know, all three of the Gallus films are, are Amazon. There are many Netflix films, including Marowitz Stories by Noah Baumbach. Um, and this is a question that comes up frequently when there are discussions of the film festival, when there are discussions of film festivals. It came up a lot in Cannes where, of course, the whole question of TV versus theatrical is very, very different than right. it is here. It has, there are different issues at stake. It's something that, you know, Thierry Fremo, the director of Khan and his selection committee always have to struggle with and work their way around. So choosing um, the Bong Joon-ho movie, Okja, and Myrowitz stories, which were both Netflix for the competition this year, was a big step. So I guess it is a big screen experience, absolutely. You know, so is Myrowitz stories. It was shot on film. You know, I mean, on the other hand, the reality is that for a lot of people, the primary delivery system more and more is, is streaming. And so, I don't know. Right. And of course, I mean, we have, in the interview that we have with Dee Reese in the new issue, she talks about how without Netflix, there would not have been a big audience for her first film, Pariah. Yeah. So she's very much on board with this. Yeah. I and mean, of course, it, she said she wants people to have a more communal experience watching. She thinks that's important for people to be watching it together. Yeah. But, you know, she's adjusting to the reality of the situation. I um, I guess I ask in the sense of, since these movies are playing at the New York Film Festival, it actually is an opportunity for people to actually yeah. see them on the big screen. That's right. And that's, I think that's a really big exciting. screen. A really big screen. Beautifully sure. projected, which is not always true uh, in every theater in the country, as we know. 
This is very true. Mm-hmm. Um, so then onto the the Bombach film, Meyerowitz Stories, mm-hmm. which you two were just saying is also Netflix. Yeah. Um, could you give a little bit of background on this one? Because um, I think when people think of a Noah Bombach film, they have certain ideas in their head, certain themes perhaps. Mm-hmm. Does this kind of play off what he's usually doing and bring it into a new realm? Is it is it just like pure pure dose of Bombach? Well, it's bigger. The canvas is bigger. So it's like, you know, I mean... You're dealing with two siblings and you know their difficult father three siblings actually but really the film is centered around the brothers played by ben stiller and, and adam sandler dustin hoffman is their father dustin hoffman's character is so much all of a piece with jeff daniel's character in the squid and the whale that there's not that much of a difference i mean you know it's just that in this one he's a sculptor rather than a writer and he's older rather than younger you know but that's that's really where the they're they're kind of exactly the same and Jeff Daniels and Dustin Hoffman are different heights you know I guess that's <laughs> um, but Dustin Hoffman on the other hand playing the character and also playing the character you know in a, the situation that he's in which is you know his his character is impaired at a certain point in the movie out of commission let's say I don't want to give too much away about it but they you know he brings his whole machinery as an actor to bear on that role and um to see him within noah bombach's universe and yes it's very it is a universe at this point you know with very specific parameters and um it's really special and beautiful and same thing with adam sandler you feel like oh it's like a meeting of different Mm. different worlds different sensibilities ben stiller on the other hand has had a longer career with um with noah and, you know, it's a movie that maybe the structure of it is, is it, you know, it, it's called Myrowitz Stories, in parentheses, new and selected, as if it were a collection of stories on the printed page. And it does indeed, I think he wanted to give it that kind of breadth and so that you could look at all these different pockets of emotion and different kinds of conflicts playing out. On the one hand, there's a father saying goodbye to his daughter, Adam Sandler, you know, and his daughter. On the other hand, they're the siblings dealing with the illness of their father. On the other hand, there's, you know, the relationship between ex-husbands and wives, and there's the presence of the, you know, crazy, quote, stepmother, unquote, played by Emma Thompson brilliantly. She, she actually has one of the greatest lines I think I've heard in a movie in years, you know, oh, he reminds me, he's soft and yet firm, reminds me of an old lover of mine, Willem Dafoe. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I probably got that wrong. So sorry, Noah, but I, it's, it's just amazing. And she delivers it brilliantly anyway. And I have been dying for Emma Thompson to get a good role because She's I absolutely adore her. Incredible. And I feel like it's been a while since I've seen her have something meaty. Yeah. Or you know, secret in, sink her teeth into. Yeah. She also um, makes an appearance in um, Vanessa Redgrave's doc, uh, documentary, Sea Sorrow. Mm. And that's showing uh, in the spotlight in the documentary section. Yes, it is. Oh, but we're here appearance. to discuss the main slate, right? I know, but I might <laughs> as well tell people they can see that as well. That's right. Sea Sorrow. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. That's Vanessa Redgrave's directorial debut. Yeah. as well that's very interesting uh is that so i looked up on um, mdb and it happened to be true i can okay. cut this out if, it, if, if it's mdb says so then I can. <laughs> back to oh, well actually you know what 
Willem Dafoe provides a really good segue. <laughs> yeah, he provides a really good segue to the Sean Baker movie. Yeah, so the Florida Project, which got a lot of buzz out of Cannes. Um, yeah. This is the, Sean Baker is the director of Tangerine, which people remember a couple of years ago, which um, was all shot on an iPhone. But this was shot on sixty millimeter, I believe, right? Yeah. So it was shot on an it was it, it was shot on an adapted iPhone, but it was an iPhone. Tangerine was. Yeah. Right. Tangerine. Yeah. Yeah. There's there are a couple of images at the end of this movie that I believe are shot on an iPhone. Hmm. So when you see it, you'll know why. But before uh, I talk about the Florida Project, I just want to acknowledge, because we were spending so much time talking about Meyerowitz stories, that I wanted to acknowledge Elizabeth Marvel as the sister, who gives a very quietly concentrated performance that's really, I, I, was, I found it very, very impressive. She's an amazing actress. She played the older version of, um, of the girl in True Grit. At the end of the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit, oh, okay. um, she's oh, a very, yeah. very special okay. actress. So, anyway, the Florida Project was in the Kenzen. I'll take this opportunity to say once again that the Kenzen was amazing this year, mm-hmm. without commenting on the rest of the festival. And right. so, that's the that's one of the non-competition slots at Cannes. It's not a non-competition; right. it's a separate festival. Actually, whole, right, it's a whole separate festival. Um, it it's at at this point they kind of joined forces and, you know, so you can see all the information printed on the same pamphlet and everything. But it's a festival that began in the wake of May 68 as a reaction to the main festival. So, you know, and so there are several films that were showing in the main slate this year that were in the Kenzen and that includes the Philippe Carell film, Lover for a Day and, and, and Claire Denis film, Let the Sunshine In. And so Florida Project is about people living in what really feels like a truly itinerant motel on the outskirts of part of Florida that's overlooked by Disney World and Epcot Center and where it feels like everything is kind of like jerry-rigged every you know week it's a struggle to pay the rent um, where there really aren't supposed to be long-term guests strictly speaking where the issues are prostitution hustling you know people getting nabbed for trying to sell like goods that they've gotten you know wholesale someplace and and you know it's really focused around this little girl and her mother and little girl's friends there's so many movies that that work with young people kids people who are actually rooted in the environment and that kind of work and kind of don't um, I saw a few this year that do just that and nothing else. You know, they don't really surprise. This one, I, not only do you feel a sense of lived in, a, a, a real sense of place and a real, you know, absolutely no filter. Again, I'm using the same word I used before between the actors and their, you know, environment and the camera. But also there is a real, this is a very, very carefully structured film. It doesn't appear to be at first. And then as it moves on, it is. And the child in the movie, the little girl, is, is absolutely amazing. I'm not claiming, by the way, that she and the woman who plays her mother, you know, live in motels. They don't, you know, they're, but, but they're not known. They're not names. And Willem Dafoe, on the other hand, who plays the manager of the motel, blends into the world perfectly. I mean, you know, it's not like one of those movies where, oh, we have, you know, this name for five days. Let's, you know, ring him like a wet washcloth and get every drop out of him that we can he's actually right. you know a member of the ensemble and he's great i was sort of it sounds like um 
that that was the kind of negative reaction I was having to a film like American Honey, say, where there was this, you know, endless, endless striving for authenticity. And then you had, not that I thought that worked particularly well either, but then you had, you know, Shia LaBeouf kind of dropped in the middle of it as this, I guess, destabilizing presence or something, but the whole thing was destabilized. So this kind of thing is not so easy to do. It's not so easy to achieve. So the Florida Project sounds like it's, it's quite an achievement. It's difficult to achieve. And I mean, you know, it's, it's something that, for instance, you know, the Safdie brothers do so well. And, you know, that, that um, but, but in this movie, uh, he's, he's looking at a world that is just new in cinema, I would say. And to kind of, I, I would like to finish off with the American films and move on to some of the other films. I didn't intend to start with only American films. It just kind of went this way. But I don't want to um, not mention... Lady Bird or Wonderstruck. Yeah. So um, I don't know which one you want to start with. Lady Bird is Greta Gerwig's directorial debut. Lady Bird is Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, and it's a specifically autobiographical film about her youth in Sacramento. And so it's set in 2002, something like that. And uh, Laurie Metcalf plays her mother. Tracy Letts plays her father. What a cast. Uh, her father, her mother. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, I'm, I'm sure it's not you know, straight autobiography, but it does <laughs> right. feel very, it has the feel of autobiography. But, you know, in the role of the character that's based on her is one of the great actresses in movies now, Saoirse Ronan. Mm. And, you know, she's just one of these, she's one of these actors who every gesture is interesting. Everything, every, every close up is mesmerizing. And, you know, whose face kind of commands the screen in the way that Lillian Gish's face commands the screen, mm. you know. Um, it's not the same kind of movie as Brooklyn. You know, she, her face isn't meant to have that kind of visual command, but still, it does. And um, it's a movie that's really, you know, based in the energies of these people. The pace moves. It's very brisk. It covers a lot of ground, and it's the emotional passage of a girl and, and a girl and her mother. And the scenes between Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf are, are, are really special. I can only imagine with those two actors. God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you're giving me great segues left and right today. You mentioned Lillian Gish. Mm. There's a sequence <laughs> yeah. in Wonderstruck, yeah. which is just full of incredible, I don't want to say simulations because it doesn't feel like that, recreations um, of the past and of fantasies within the past and movies within fantasies within the past. And um, there is a silent film. The movie is set in 1927 and 1977. And... Um, Todd Haynes, the, the great filmmaker, jumps seamlessly back and forth between them. It's based on the book by Brian Selznick. Within the 1927 version, there is a silent film within the film with Julianne Moore playing a very Lillian Gish-esque role. It looks like The Wind, and they said they were inspired by the film The Wind when they made that film. Yes, Lillian Gish-esque, and at the same time, maybe Sparrows, Mary Pickford, or another Lillian Gish movie way down east. You know, it's got the Griffith film, it's got it's redolent of, of a lot of that work. And of course it's 1927. So part of the, what's happening in the movie is that the dawn of sound is coming. Right. Yeah. Which is particularly poignant because yes. it's from the point of view of a, a young deaf girl. Exactly. So when she leaves the theater, she looks up and she sees the signs that sound is coming. And of course for her, that's completely devastating. Yeah. And who's remarkable by the way, uh, we'll talk about a face. I mean, you know, she just, Every minute that she's on screen, this yeah, this young actress uh, is named Millicent Simmons, and yeah. she's a deaf actress. Boy, yes, that's right, she is. Um, boy, is she great! 
Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about recreations of the past, but then both sections of the films are different kinds of, of the film are different kinds of recreations of di two different pasts. And so modern section of the film is 1977 and it begins in Gunflint Lake, Minnesota. And then it's a journey to New York. And I mean, I remember arriving in New York in 1970. 77 78 and just coming down for the summer and walking around times square and stuff and boy it's i mean he really it's not you know it's the difference between an okay filmmaker and a great one because i mean you're watching it the production design all feels right that's all terrific you know the clothes that the actors are wearing the way that the background the extras are chosen, but then he's spending time on little things and getting the rhythm of walking out onto those streets in the dead of summer and, you know, 1977, which is of course the summer of the blackout, which figures in the movie. Um, I believe it was also the summer of Sam, but it was, that's not part of the movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully, but it's a movie that really gives you a, it captures the way that the air, you, it's, it's like the air, the thickness of the air of New York in summer and the smells and the kind of, you know, armor that people, you know, the invisible armor that, you know, for lack of a better term, that people put on when they were, you know, put on their best face when they're walking down the street, you know, that changes throughout eras if you look at photographs of earlier eras. And I mean, Todd Haynes, you know, you can, you can see it. And Todd Haynes is a guy who really pays attention to that kind of stuff. He really does. And so this is a movie of, you know, great, grand emotions. I mean, there's one scene in it that's just, you know, we should be passing out boxes of, you know, Kleenex um, to the audience. Maybe we will. But, you know, I just... It, and it just keeps <laughs> it keeps building and building. And you're like, no, please don't. I've I've cried enough. Um, I think that's actually an interesting thread between uh, actually a lot of the films, but certainly the three gala slots. These are very emotional movies. Yes, they are. All of them. Mm -hmm. I was very moved in different ways by all of them. They do not shy away from emotion. They're very earnest and they're very um, they're yeah. challenging too in in those ways. Well, most good films don't shy away from emotion. That's right? true. I mean, you know. Let's let's actually let's make that all good films. Right. <laughs> you just don't. Maybe we don't see them as much as we used to, so it feels very. Yeah, that's quite true. Fresh. I mean, I, 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 it's true. There are less, fewer good films now than there used to be. Um, one more thing I wanted to say about about Wonderstruck is just the sound design in that film is amazing. Is so exquisite, and the the because he's dealing with these two eras, and it it has to just kind of slip between them without That's you even noticing. And he has these sound bridges and shot cuts. And um, it's really the work of a master at the top of his craft and everyone else who worked on it, Ed Lockman, Mark Friedberg. Yes. Um, it's it's a great film. And I think people are going to respond to it a Tom lot. Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan is great in that yeah, scene. Beautiful. I love when he's given something to do that's not to be the heavy or the creep <clears throat> next door. Yeah. In the great go-to bookstore, when people want to shoot old-fashioned bookstores, that's the one that they go to. It's on Broadway and 80th. It's called West Sider. Oh, good to know. Yeah, it was in uh, John Turturro's movie *Fading Gigolo* a few years back with Woody Allen as well. Yeah, it's a very inviting-looking bookstore. Yep, um, and and considering that it's a movie about tactile things and and you know the loss of 
of objects. And, yes. Um, I feel like it's, you know, it's important that a bookstore, a museum, a diorama, like yes. all these things, that all these things are really central to the film. It's, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, movie. and that diorama is a very special, you know, a lot of people don't know about that. Um, in the Queens Museum, the diorama of New York City, which is kept up to date, but boy. Yeah, I don't know anyone who is not wowed by that when they go to see that time. Yeah, I mean, I've taken my kids to see it a few times when they were younger. Stay there all day. Yeah, I know. Look at everything and find your own house too, because it's right, right. Yes, even more exciting than Google Earth View. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I even more, it's even more exciting than Google Earth View. <laughs> That's very true. Um, now to, to move away from American films a bit, I want to start with Lucretia Martel's Zama. Um, I have not seen it yet, which upsets me every day that I wake up until I see it because um, she's, for those who may not know, I'm, hopefully most people listening know Lucretia Martel. She's an Argentinian filmmaker. She directed La Cienega, which is now available from Criterion. She directed The Holy Girl and uh, The Headless Woman. Woman, which is one of the great films of this century so far. Um, truly great, a spectacular. Uh, unlike any other film you've ever seen, nothing will, nothing could imitate it. Nothing will come close. Um, so I haven't seen Zombie yet. It's a historical fiction. I'm very excited about it. Maybe you could talk about Lucretia Martel's return. Well, it's a film we've all been waiting for for a very, very long time, and we've all been waiting to be surprised, you know. And so that's exactly what happens. I mean, you know, it's a really surprising experience, and a very um, follows a its own mysterious thread you know i mean i remember doing a um a talk with lucrecia when she was here for headless woman and she was talking about thinking of herself she studied medicine when she was younger and thinking of herself almost like a physician and that the camera is like an instrument that probes what is it probing is it probing you know that's the question i guess is it probing the actors maybe not really is it probing her maybe probing the filmmaker and the world around the filmmaker and in this case she's making a film based on uh someone else's material for the very first time it's a novel that was written in the 50s called zama that's set in the spanish colonies in south america in the 18th century and the lead character is you know a man who's just dissatisfied hot wanting to get out kind of bewildered and seemingly stunned into inarticulate, a state of inarticulation by the heat, kind of mystified by the doom, by the goings on around him. In other words, so it's a film that, that appears to be building and as it's, but it's appearing, it appears to be building towards something that's very elusive and then at the same time, it feels as if the world around him or within him or both are disintegrating. And then the film shifts into something that becomes increasingly more and more disturbing as it goes. Um, it's a pretty powerful experience. And, you know, it's all of a piece with her other work. It's very involved with textures and heat. And It sounds like perspective, point of view. Like it's very much from a character's point of view. Perhaps. Yes and no. Hmm, yes and no. Yeah. For the most part, I would say yes. Yeah. Her films are always movies that are so unsettling and disturbing the first time you watch them that you're not quite sure what to make of them. And that's the sign of you know, often great art. But um, I wonder if that, is it like that? Is it the kind of film you see and you might be puzzling over the first time and kind of crave to see it again to get uh, it all together? Well, 
Yeah, that's that's always a good thing, I think. Yeah, you know, it appears to have been a problem for others. Um, right. <laughs> you know, not anyone that I know in the immediate surroundings here, but um, it's... Uh, and it's also been a long time between movies uh, because um, The Headless Woman was 2008. That's a long time ago. And yeah. So it's taken her a while to get this one off the ground. And I'm really, you know, we're all happy that she's got another movie up on the screen. Claire Denis has a, a new film this year. It's called Un Beau Soleil Interieur, but they're calling it Let the Sun Shine In. Yes, I believe they are, which is, well, that's, it's okay. You know, I mean, could have been worse. It's always hard. You know, it's like becomes summer hours. That's an odd Hmm. kind of summer hours. The first time I heard it, I was like, when I I thought of people leaving on Friday at one, you know, I I didn't think about, it was like, oh, okay. Uh, But on the other hand, it's become none under that name. And then this one, they were originally going to call another name, but. No, it's let the sunshine in, and I think that that's good, you know. Okay, so what does the title refer to, and then what's well, the you'll <laughs> you'll say. Okay, actually, in the film's last scene, it's embodied in a really beautiful way. Mm. It's embodied through the rest of the film in 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 different ways, or as the film goes along through the Julia Binoche character. And I mean, you know, really, what this film is about is about it's it's a movie that moves through time in ways that are very surprising and novel and always the same. It's always like that with her movies. And it's it's something that I personally find very moving, mm-hmm. the way that she relates to time in her films. Oh, for sure. And the movement of time. And it's, you know, really what it is, is it's a woman who's just moving from one sense of an ultimate man and an ultimate life with a man to another, you know, ultimate another man and another vision of an ultimate life with a man and it's very with that man and so on you know and there's good men and the not so good men you know the not so good men being embodied by you know a married man that she begins to film with and then you know there's the good-looking charmer and the very nice man who's not really available you know and it's just and Binoche is really good man she's good um, and un beau soleil intérieur, you know, a beautiful light from within would be a more literal title, I guess, you know, um, kind of defines her in a sense because she, as an actress, always feels like, you know, the word luminous is often used in a very impressionistic way. I myself have done it in my own writing, you know, where you just like, this actress is luminous. It's never used for men. It's always used for women. <laughs> you know, the luminosity of Saoirse Ronan. But like, you know, it, it, in fact, in the case of Binoche, it applies because she does have this very unusual, she, you know, appears to be lit from within. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it just impressionistically. And so... She's doing something that Kate Winslet is doing as well in Wonder Wheel, which is, you know, um, far from, um, she's playing right into aging, you know, something she's always done. I mean, you know, that's very much a part of the Karastami film, Certified Copy. It's very much a part of Claude Cecil's Maria, you know, and it's it's very, very much a part of this film. And it also stars the uh, luminous Gerard Depardieu, correct? Yes, but I'm not going to say where he appears in the film. Okay. You have to kind of experience that because, yes, and he's great, just great. I mean, really, he's amazing. So, 
Well, that is very exciting. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, this film, Thelma. Yeah. Which is a new film by Joaquin, Joaquin Trier. Trier. Yeah. And this, is a, this one's a complete mystery to me. You know, it's a film that, that appears to change its destination as it goes along, change its destination. You have the impression as you're watching the movie that it's one thing. And then as it evolves, you retract, you become aware of the fact that it's probably something else. But really, he's masterful at, at quite a few different things. One of the things that he's masterful at is really getting into the the kind of unspoken gestural and tone, you know, tones of voice that can that can come from a parent and set off signals in a child that they're kind of controlling from afar over the phone or just in tabletop conversation. You know, this is about two parents whose daughter goes away for the first time from the countryside to, to Copenhagen. And that kind of relationship, that kind of controlling relationship between parent and child is really forceful in the movie. On the other hand, so is the sense of blooming young love, in this case, between her and a, a girl that she um, meets at a pool. And it's uh, very tangible without being exploitatively erotic, I would say. I mean, like, you know, it really, there's not a moment of it that feels, and this is something that I think has, you know, always been a problem in movies where you take, you know, two good looking women and put them together. And, you know, it's like in, invariably you wind up with some kind of fantasy. It often happens in sex scenes in, you know, many movies. And so in this film, no, not at all. Not that there's a full-fledged, it's not like blue is the warmest color or something, but you know, there is this blooming love between these two young women. And anyway, it's a movie that, that, seemed, that appears to be kind of a coming-of-age story, then perhaps appears to be a horror movie, and kind of is, both things. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it's something else, finally. So I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Well, that's very exciting. And then there's another uh, always shape-shifting director here. That's Arnaud Desplechins. And his oh, new yeah. film, Ishmael's <laughs> Ghosts. And this is a director's cut of Ishmael's Ghosts. So if you could, and that's how it's being, um, that's how we're titling and that's how, it's, this is the director's cut of the film. So if you could explain actually why there's a director's cut of Ishmael's Ghosts. Well. And about the film, because it's very exciting. In fact, the real explanation should be why there is another cut that's not the director's cut. And we can call it the director's cut, but really it's the film. And like all of Arnaud Desplechins' films, it's a film that, that perhaps more though than, than, than others, uh, it's a film that goes in all different kinds of directions. I think when he was here with My Golden Days a couple of years ago, he was quoting Truffaut, who said that um, some writers, you know, Jean Gouraud, somebody, you know, Jean-Louis Richard made a suggestion to him, and Truffaut said, sorry, you must have me confused with Antonioni. I don't want to have one idea every five minutes. I want to have five ideas every one minute. <laughs> so, you know, and that's basically Arnaud's principle as a right. filmmaker. You know, I've gone down that road with him and had that experience with him and Jimmy. You know, I mean, that's what he's always trying to do. In this movie, he has different threads. There are different realities that are that are you know, uh, in different um, time frames that he keeps shifting between. There's a movie that's being made, or what you learn is a movie that's being made by a filmmaker played by Matteo Malrique, 
and he's Ismael, which is the character that he played in Kings and Queen, right? And who is being visited by his wife, who he's given up for dead, who's just disappeared off the face of the earth 20 years previously, who is the daughter of a great documentary filmmaker who bears more than a small resemblance to Claude Lensman. <laughs> so, you know, and played by Laszlo Zabo, who's, you know, great. Um, anyway, and the two, in, and he's currently involved with a woman played by Charlotte Gainsbourg and the woman who plays the, the wife who comes back named Carlotta. Well, what is that? Movie fans to? out there um, <laughs> is, is uh, Maria Cotillard. And Louis Garrel is in the film as well. Uh, anyway, stars. Ippolit Giraudot. Yeah. I, it's an amazing film. And for some reason that, you know, someone will have to explain at some point, the Cannes Film Festival decided that they needed to open with the shorter version of the film. So hmm. anyway. It's strange there was a shorter version, I guess, because it has such big stars in it. They felt like they wanted to have a some sort of a more marketable version. You know, when Arnaud comes, maybe he'll talk about that and mm. maybe he won't. I don't know. All I know is that this is the film and that's what we're showing. Because it's interesting. I, I, not, I, I haven't seen it yet, but thinking about his films, yeah. it's really hard and I'll, I'll, actually kind of terrifying to imagine there being alternate cuts that were, that were somehow made and put in theaters for more marketability. Well, you know, just a minute ago, you and I were talking about with the microphone off the the way that the divergence between criticism and filmmaking right you know i mean this is something that's been on my mind for years and you know let's say that it's more on my mind now than it has been in the past you know and so i find i you know um i don't know about you but i'm always running into people who are saying something like well i like that movie but i think you know they could have cut 20 minutes out of it oh, it would yeah. be better and, you know, you hear that and you're just thing. like, what does that mean? What on earth are you talking about? You know, because it's like, you know, cut 20 minutes out, what, at random? Right. And if you were to ask them, they would say no. And I'm not, you know, by the way, I'm not saying this to be critical of people. It's just that as opposed to other art forms and movies, there's all kinds of sort of like language that's based on an impressionistic response to movies as opposed to the actual making of movies and um that filters down through you know the ranks and it's also based on like you know oh i'm just a layman it's just one man's opinion you know and movies are a popular art form and here's what i think but it's just it's the idea that like you could just cut 20 random minutes out of something or 10 random minutes or five random minutes out of something is always nonsense and the idea that you could just chop something out and have a movie that's like shorter but still the same is also ridiculous. You know, every good movie is all of a piece. Even a movie that appears to be all over the place, like Ismail's Ghosts, but there really isn't because it's very carefully structured. It's structured to, to feel a little bit out of control. And so, you know, but this is a moment when... Um, people zero in on that kind of thing as if it were a fault. Right. Forgetting that cinema is, you know, an art form that is completely dependent on duration, duration of all sorts. That duration, it could be a long shot. It could be a short shot. It could be a sequence of shots cut together to create a very particular emotional response in the viewer, but it's all about a very particular length and duration of something. And that has nothing to do with the actual length and duration of the movie itself as a whole. A running time is completely arbitrary. Well, it's running time is completely arbitrary. And also if you 
I just, I know this from personal experience. If you, if you cut one, I don't want to be too extreme about it, but if you cut one frame out of something early in the movie, it's going to affect the whole movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in some cases, you know, or if you cut one shot out or if you change the rhythm of one scene, it, it, because I, I, you know, filmmaking is a matter of rhythm. Um, I, I, it's really a matter of rhythm. It's a matter of rhythm on many different levels. The, the, grand master rhythm of the whole movement of the story and the, you know, the images and the emotions and the grand, the, the, the rhythms of the actors working with each other, the rhythms of the actors in conjunction with the, the, the rhythm of the, um, of the shot, um, and the scenes and the music and the sound, and, you know, I mean, all of those things are, they're all of the pieces, one great rhythmic construction. And so, you know, and it could be anything. I mean, it's. It, I mean, you're talking about rhythm. It, it's. 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 Yes. It's. It's. It's when Kim Novak turns her head ever so slightly the first time she enters the restaurant in Vertigo, mm -hmm. and it cuts. It seems like it's cutting away too fast, but it's also, uh, you know, a woman under influence. Something just goes on seemingly too long. It's really not for anyone other than the people crafting it to say this should have been faster. This should have been slower. I mean. The movie is what it is, and it has its rhythm, and it has its emotional. It has its emotional reaction, yeah. and anyway, it I was sure thinking does. that because I was because I've seen I've seen a Christmas Tale, the Dave Plaschen film, many times. Mm -hmm. It's a film that I love all of his films. I've seen Kings and Queen many times, but a Christmas Tale for whatever reason is the one I go back to. Everyone has the one that they go back mm -hmm. to, and um, this is a movie that when it came out, I recall everyone saying. That it was, you know, too long. A mess. You know, a mess. quote unquote. It's a mess. It's too long. Yeah. Um, you know, why does he have to have this character? Why does he do this this way? Why is this happening? What are the, these different mixtures of tones? It's all over the whatever the the word that was being used to describe something as you know different than what I expected. And um, the more I watch it, the more I realize I, I wouldn't sacrifice a single shot from that movie. Well, you know. There's, I remember Brian Eno was talking in his in his book, his diary, published diary. He said he just made an odd, con an interesting comment. He said, you know, cooking um, can be a way of listening to the radio. And by the same token, watching movies is often, um, for a lot of people, a way of building to a comment. <laughs> you know, it's like in, in, the comment. So it's a mess. You know, I mean, I. A lot of people say that very, you know, freely, that kind of thing. But that's sometimes a, they're not even saying it in a derisive way. They think that it's some sort of a yeah. backhanded compliment. Yeah, it's a great mess. <laughs> right. It's a beautiful mess. You know, it's like as if, and so, you know, it's particularly when you're saying it about a film like that, you know, to describe that movie as a mess, you're, you're, that's putting the carpet, letting the tail wag the dog. <laughs> is putting it mildly but anyway same thing is true of this film well i'm um i do want to talk about uh, there are a, a lot of films in this in the, in the main slate of the yeah, don't we Festival. have a couple more hours of, but exactly we yeah. um we don't have as much time speaking, of time speaking of things that are getting out of hand and a bit messy um i but i think it would be a mistake to end without talking a little bit about Agnes Varda's new film mm. which she co-directed with jr jr this is a film that I have seen, and I and I, people use the word um, overuse the word charming to describe her films. I think she's doing something um, much more delicate and much more challenging, and and sometimes unsettling. Um, 
she's really she she looks at herself as much as she goes up there and um in the tries to it what she's doing in this movie is she and the photographer, the large scale photographer JR, going to small villages across the countryside in France and taking pictures of the people who live in certain places and then putting gigantic versions of themselves basically on the sides of buildings or they're not doing it. Places. He is, yeah, right. Um, J- yeah, JR ultimately does. Yeah. Um, but they they co-directed this film, and this is the um, this is the structure that it takes. Though it kind of has it, it has has like a stop and start almost formlessness that I find very, very um, appealing because she said that they were only able to shoot a few days out of every month because she's, you know, she's just about 90. She gets tired. Mm -hmm. She's just being honest. And her age is also a big part of the movie and she tackles it head on. I just found this film to be a continuation of The Gleaners and I, which is her great film from 2000. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd love to hear what this film kind of does in terms of cinema for you, Kent. (laughs) Well, I have to say I'm lost in admiration for that film. And we were just talking about rhythm and we'll have to keep talking about it because that film is all a matter of rhythm. Ines Varda, as everybody knows, you know, has always been a great editor. And um, the way that the movie springs forward and it keeps surprising and springing forward and moving and, you know, quickly into this direction and that direction and getting out of it becomes it's got a it's got a vitality that feels like it's close to it brings to mind the phrase the quick and the dead you know i mean in other words like what we normally associate with with having a grand overarching vision of um existence and art that encompasses life and death and you know pain and all of it we associate with the slow and the com- contemplative. So, you know, Andre Tarkovsky's movies, Mizuguchi, you know, and those incredible camera movements, you know, that end Ugetsu and Sancho, the bailiff, um, the end of Vertigo. Um, you know, I mean, these are things that, that are associated with slowness. But in the case of this film, you are in that realm but it's actually the quickness because you become aware of the fact with certain moments and certain cuts of the moment being over, being over, or the moment being over. We're there in the moment and then it's over because it always has to be because life has to move on. There's an amazing scene in the film where she and JR find Henri Cartier-Bresson's grave and it's a tiny, tiny place that's smaller than this room that we're in right now, you know, um, a country graveyard and she says something so simple but so beautiful about you know her own death which is going to come sooner rather than later um just because of her you know by virtue of sheer of, of numbers and uh i won't say what it is but it's just you know and also the end of the film you haven't seen this film no i have you have I, I great okay so the end of the film is a you know addresses another filmmaker who we won't name, right? You know, who's supposed to show up and doesn't. And with a very different kind of, let's say, approach to these questions. And I guess that I would say that in contrast to that filmmaker, the simplicity of this movie is just remarkable. I don't know. I was really in awe of it. And I loved uh, JR. He's an artist that I really wasn't familiar with. And his presence is beautiful. And so is the way that she uses, you know, the the links between his own 
um, uh, style of dress and his own dark glasses with Jean-Luc Godard, you know, at a young age. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's it is a it's a film of contrast. There's almost an ongoing joke about he always wears sunglasses, but yeah. then there's also. Agnes Farda dealing with her own eye surgery. So there's a lot that's going on with their eyes and with seeing. And then, mm-hmm. um, yes, exactly. As you say, there's this thing that happens at the end. You're watching a film that's all about um, presence and being there. And then there's an absence and the absence is a presence and it's mm-hmm. in itself. And um, surprisingly, um, overwhelmingly emotional. Yes, extremely emotional. Um, extremely. Very moving film. Well, I think that that's where we're going to have to end. Uh, though yeah. I do encourage. We should, say, we should just yes. say that there are a lot of French films in this main slate this year. And this is just, you know, there's always the question of like, how did you arrive at this? And it's like, well, you arrive at because you just pick the films that you think are the best films. I mean, right. that's, that's our mandate. And that's what we do. Right. And, and this year you happen to have not only Varda and, and Denis, but you had Philippe Garel. Yeah. You had Desplechin. Robin Campillo. Robin um, Campillo's BPM. Yeah. Um, a lot of French films. And in addition to that, a lot of films directed by women. Yes, there are. There's, um, a, there's good, a, a, good, a good ratio. There's Agnès, there's Claire, there's... Valeska uh, Grisebach. Yeah. Right, who directed Western. Yeah, Western, which is an amazing film. D. Reese. You know, I mean, it's... it's, And that's great. Yeah, so. I mean, this is, this is a really outstanding lineup from what I've seen. And then the things <laughs> I haven't seen, I can tell from what you say are outstanding. And I do encourage everyone to... Uh, yeah, go to the website and look up all the films. We were not able to talk about all of them because we don't have endless amounts of time. Um, but um, there are some surprises in there too. So, and there's there is a film called Mrs. Hyde with Isabelle Huppert, and I'm mm. not going to say what that's about. The that's Bazin, but that's quite a movie. Serge Bazin, another French film. Yeah, and um, with that's another film, by the way, with a really powerful link to the past, to cinema's past, mm. and specifically the films that Jacques Turner made with. Val Luton, I think there's somehow the echoes of Cat People and Leopard Man, and I walked with a zombie in that movie. I found oh. really moving in and of themselves. Oh, well, you're hitting all my buttons. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <good. laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kent. Thanks. This was a good conversation. Thanks. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.